we may have to do that. Uh, but it's really like massively, it's good. Okay, one more. One more, one more. Something God said to you. I'm giving you, like, you've got the last two weeks. Go. Um, faith is more than simply believing, being empowered unto righteousness. Amen. That's good. We're actually going to talk about that a little bit today. So we are in Romans chapter 1. We're starting with verse 7. Why is that funny? That's pretty good, actually. I mean, it's, it's just been different. I imagine for the past years. <laughs> so remember, kind of recap. Okay, the Apostle Paul, um, he's writing to Rome. Rome is the Christians there, made up of half Jewish, half Gentile believers. He's never been there before. Um, he's writing this letter kind of as a precursor to what he believes will be a future trip to minister in the Roman church, a trip which kind of never happens. I mean, he ends up in Rome, <coughs> but when he gets to Rome, he's in chains. He's a prisoner, and he doesn't really get to go. He gets to minister to people that come to him, and uh, but he doesn't actually get to go be a part of the body uh, while he's there. But he's writing this to kind of give them like a foundation, some things. These are the things we're going to talk about when we're there. And he's speaking, he tries to make, this whole book is this balance where he's trying to help people from two completely different worldviews to meld their worldview into a Christian worldview. We've got a former, formerly pagan and formerly <laughs> Jewish who are now followers of Jesus Christ. And so they both have completely different mindsets about how the world works and and even about how God works. And so Paul is attempting to kind of speak in such a way that he will draw them both together. That's what this book is all about. So now we get to verse 7, and it's the address to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. You have to remember when you're reading a biblical text who it was intended for. You have to remember the original recipients of this communication because it will change the way that you interpret the information that gets sent. Um, and so <coughs> we, it is important that we know that he is sending it to Rome. It's important that we know he's writing to Christians, people who have already put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is not an evangelical document. He's not trying to convince people to come to Christ. This is a letter to Christians. And it's, we do know, I mean, it's both Jew and Gentile, which is why he doesn't say to all the Jews in Rome, to all the Gentile believers in Rome. He says, to all of you who are called as saints. And this word saints um, in latter years has, has been kind of messed with. It's been kind of, uh, it's got some baggage now after 2,000 years that it doesn't deserve. And that is, um, the word saint here in the Greek means those who are set apart unto God, those that God has called unto himself. It means the, the consecrated ones, those God has chosen for himself and set apart for only for his use. That's what it means, saint. It does not mean those of you who have, uh, you know, 
done all of these good works. And so, oh, well, he's a saint. You know what I'm talking about? We use that phrase all the time. Just nix that from your brain. That isn't, that isn't what we're talking about. He's not writing this letter to just like five people in Rome who were really specially good people. No, these are he's writing the letter to everyone in Rome who has been who has responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that, God has set them apart. You are a saint. You have, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you personally have been set apart out of the world unto the Lord. Paul talks about it. He says things like, we've died to sin. We've died to the world so that we can live to God. It's, it's, you've been taken out of one category and you've been put in another. You've been taken out of darkness and you've been put in light. You've been taken out of the kingdom of this, the system of this world and you've been put into the kingdom of heaven. You are not who you were. You have been made different. Something happened when you believed on the gospel. Something happened to you. <clears throat> I, I, so it's hard to explain, especially people. How many of you grew up in church? Like, that's your background, your world. We are surrounded by church people our whole lives. It, this is our culture. So it doesn't feel like we were ever different than we are now. Like, you know, people talk about their testimonies, and I used to joke around and say, I was really heavy into drugs and sex, and then in kindergarten, God turned my life around. You know, it's... it's <laughs> You know, it's not, uh, it's obviously, it's, I don't have that kind of a testimony, okay? but that does not mean that it's any, my salvation experience, my, my being set apart unto God is just as miraculous as someone who has lived their whole lives running from God and now have been brought to him. I was dead in my sin. I was unre- unregenerated. I was on my way to hell, all of those things are true of me until the transaction with the gospel took place where my life was given over and nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ and I was given the resurrection life of Christ to now live out the rest of my life. That's true of me. And those of us that were raised in church find it sometimes hard, sometimes difficult to really grasp this supernatural event which took place, which is at work inside of us, even now, right now. You are being transformed by the influence of the Holy Spirit on the inside of you at this moment. Jesus Christ is at work in you to make him more like himself. What did I just say? To make you more like himself. He doesn't need to make him more like himself. That doesn't make any sense. But Jesus is at work in you. And we need to understand that this, this reality, this thing called salvation has begun in us. It is by no means finished. That's why Paul says things like working out my salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, you know, you look at that phrase and you're like, what does that even mean? I mean, the apostle Paul isn't saved. Not completely. Not yet. His physical body was still was unresurrected. The resurrection power began, I love the song you were just listening to, the resurrected king is currently right now at this moment in this experience right now resurrecting me. I am not resurrected yet, but I am in the process of resurrection. 
that we call salvation or the Christian life, or we have a million words for it. This, that is what is going on in me. And it's because at some point down the line, you were set apart by God for himself. You are a saint. We have to live with that knowledge that the one who created all the universe is at work on the inside of me all the time. Okay. <coughs> Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul always uses these two words when he greets people. Grace and peace. And the reason he does that is because he's always, almost always speaking to a double audience of Jew and Gentile. What is, does anyone know if you're in Israel, what is the greeting? Shalom, which is translated roughly as peace. Okay. So that's why he says peace from God, our father. He is speaking to a Jewish audience. He knows that. So he says, Shalom. May, I mean, that's, he uses the Greek word for shalom, but it was just interchangeable, and that's how they thought of it. He was using that. And grace is a much more Greek greeting. Okay, so he's putting them together. He's trying to, you know, but he uses it all the time. Almost every letter that he has, that he has written in the New Testament starts with him saying grace and peace. Okay, they're the Siamese twins of Paul's letters. It's a, uh, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. I, I really find this, this way of speaking fascinating. Because we don't think, we just think, well, thank God. Well, the Apostle Paul says, no, I thank God through Jesus. Your relationship with God the Father only exists because of Christ. He said it himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. What? How? except through me. So everything that we say to God the Father, we're saying through Jesus. Everything that God thinks about us, he is looking through Jesus at us. Um, I didn't write it down, but there's a verse, one of my favorite verses, and my favorite ways to think about my relationship with God my Father is, the Apostle Paul says, I think it's in Galatians, he says, I'm hidden with Christ in God. So it's like one of those Russian dolls, you know, you've got me and then around me is Jesus and then around Jesus is God the Father. It's like, it's like that. I, I am inside of Jesus. I have been unified with him in his death and resurrection through faith. I've been unified with Christ. I have been like made one with Jesus. I've been made one with Jesus. Let that simmer on your brain for a second. You've been unified with Christ. You have been made one with him. This should simultaneously be like our greatest fear and our greatest rejoicing. Like at the same time. like <laughs> Because to me, my first thought is, have I polluted him? The answer is yes, you did. But he took that pollution and killed it on the cross, and then he rose from the dead, and we're good. See, in order for our sins to die with Christ, we had to be unified with him. That's what faith does. Faith takes us, and it infuses us into Christ himself, so that when he died, we died. 
And when he rose from the dead, we rose from the dead. And we don't see that fully manifested now. But it, but we will. This is part of the picture of when, when, we call, when we talk about being the bride of Christ. In fact, this is one of the reasons marriage was created. Was to illustrate this future reality that God was going to bring about in this marriage of God, of, of deity and humanity that happened in Jesus Christ. It's an, it is one of those mysteries that I love to just sit and think about and just let my nose bleed because it's... It will, it's, it's like, but how does it work? I don't know. I, I don't know. But there's pictures all throughout the scripture. There's pictures all throughout, um, uh, uh, all throughout even Jesus' own life. We, we've been fused with him, made one with Christ. Then we die. And so when he died, we died. And when he rose from the dead, we rose from the dead. That's why I say resurrection is already at work within us because Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. And he's already raised from the dead. So resurrection has already begun. The minute we were fused with Christ, we died and we began to be resurrected. So every time we pray, our prayer goes through Jesus to the Father. When we thank God, when we pray, when we worship, every communication you have, every, every grace that comes the whole first chapter of the book of Ephesians, the Bible says, in Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. In Christ, we were adopted. In Christ, we were chosen. In Christ, we were set apart. In Christ, we were given an incorruptible. Go read it. Go read the first chapter of Ephesians. It's all about it. It's just in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Why? Because our connection to Jesus is what, give, is what makes all these blessings flow in and through our lives. And when we are disconnected, if we were ever disconnected from Jesus, we would have none of them. We would have nothing. We would have no relationship with God. We would have nothing but our own sin. That's all that we would have. We would just be us. But in Christ, everything that's his is mine, and everything that's mine is his. That's what a covenant does. When we celebrate that covenant through communion, that word communion means we are connected to each other. We have everything in common. Communion. That's what it means. That we have come to a place of being linked with one another. Spiritually unified. So everything that we send up goes through Jesus. And everything that comes down goes through Jesus to us. And the beautiful thing is, because we're connected to Christ, we have access through faith to everything that Jesus has access to. We are literally co-heirs with Christ of the universe. Think about it. Would you walk into the White House and just get into the fridge and... You know, would you, would you like, you know, go through President Obama's desk and be like, can I keep this pen? Right. I mean, like, here's 50 cents for the pot machine. You know what I mean? Like, like, would you, I would totally steal an ashtray. I mean, totally. but, President Obama smokes every once in a while. How do you know that? It's not a secret. 
I mean, I'm not like saying that you're wrong. I was just wondering. Like, <laughs> I've seen like video and pictures of him. It's like okay. um, he doesn't really want that to be like out there, out there. But yeah. he does smoke every once in a while. He's yeah. not like you know five packs a day. I don't even know that he smokes every day, but he does. Smoke every once in a while. If you let me sit at his desk in the Oval Office, I would definitely grab a pen and be like, dude, can I keep this? Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, he wouldn't let you sit at his desk. Yeah, but like if that happened. But why? Okay. But do you think his daughters are allowed to go through his desk? Probably. Yeah. Okay. Why? Because of their connectedness. Hopefully. They're one. Okay. You know, I love that picture of JFK where he's on the phone to like, Russia and his son is under the desk, like like playing with his cars, you know? It's like, that. but that's us. That's where we are. Because that's where Jesus is. That's where we are. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So I'm seated at the right hand of the Father in him. Right now, this moment, this second, we are seated in this moment at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places because we're in Christ. Just kind of crazy. So I don't, uh, I, I have problems with, like theological problems with a lot of worship songs. Because they're all like, come down, show up God, blah, blah, blah. I'm going, you are seated at the right hand of God right now. You, what are you talking about? Come down. He's there. You are in him. He is in you. It's done. You don't, God, he doesn't have to come. You know, he's here. Because you're here, he's here. That's why Jesus said, where two or three of you are gathered, I will, I am there in the midst. Because guess what? We're there. Right this second, you are seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is not far from you. No matter how it feels, he is not far from you. The Lord said to me one time, he said to me, if, if there is emotional difference, if you feel distance from me, it's your distance, not my distance. It's because you are choosing to sit back away from me. And I went, that's not true. I don't want to. And he said, then let me mess with your stuff. Never mind. I'll stay out here. <laughs> okay, we build these, these internal emotional walls. We, we cut off our faith. But the truth is, with faith, we can reach right out of the, the visible into the invisible and pull things from heaven into the earth. In fact, that's why we're here. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? Do you ever, you ever notice when Jesus was walking around Israel and he would r run across faith, he would go, <gasps> Faith! You know, have you ever noticed that? Like Jesus' reaction to faith? Like whenever he found it, he would be like, I haven't seen this much faith in all of Israel, guys. Faith, look, faith. Okay, Jesus was excited about it. Why? Why? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I, I, this, is, this is a question I've thought about a lot. Because I don't want to be... Like, I, I want to be the one Jesus finds and goes, oh, faith, faith, faith. That's who I want to be. I want to be that person. I want to be the one where Jesus, where Jesus wants to do something and all of a sudden he finds somebody who's ready to cooperate with him. Because to me, that's what faith is. Faith is 
a readiness, an expectation, and a desire to be in cooperation with God about what he wants to do in the earth. That's faith. And so when Jesus comes along and Jesus desires to heal the sick, and all of a sudden he finds someone that actually, honestly, truthfully, in the depths of their heart, desires to be in cooperation with God in that moment, releasing heaven onto the earth, he goes, yes! And he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He's wondering. Because the truth is, the only reason Jesus will come is because he has a people on the planet with faith saying, come Lord Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done. We'll talk about that more some other time. What? It has nothing to do with that. Regardless of when the rapture happens, yeah. it's the only reason it will take place is because God the Father says it's time and because Jesus said, I will not, you will not see me again until there are Jews in Jerusalem saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He has to have a people on the earth standing in faith and agreement before the second coming can happen. No, Let that mess if, with your head. If all believers were soaked up in heaven. Okay, I'm talking about that. <laughs> yeah. The rapture itself is what I'm referring then to. How does that verse, if, if, how is the sign going to come down when there's believers or those of faith? Regardless of whether the rapture happens before or after the tribulation, there will be Christians on the earth during the tribulation. Because either people will get saved after the rapture, or we won't be raptured until the tribulation is already mostly over, and then it's not going to be an issue. I personally believe that the rapture and the second coming of Jesus are the same moment. And that Jesus coming, he's coming once, only once, because he doesn't talk about two comings. Go ahead and look for it. If you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you believe Jesus is going to come twice. Once to pick you up, and a second time to come down. Okay, because that's what has to happen. Jesus has got to like skim the surface, you know, to just skim the atmosphere. Come on, guys. We all jump in the car and go. Okay. Or, and then he comes back and he's like, okay, we're back now. Okay. So that's what a pre-tribulation rapture person believes is that Jesus is going to appear in the sky, suck all the Christians off the earth, and then, you know, kind of shake the dust off his feet and say, later earth, and then come back seven years later after the earth has completely fallen apart, and then take over the world. That's, that's what a pre-tribulation rapture person believes. I don't believe that, but that's okay. <clears throat> so, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. It must have been utterly shocking for the world that a small Jewish sect had taken root in the center of world culture. Like, there's people that believe in Jesus in the in Rome, like we thought, we got rid of this problem. We killed him. He's dead. Oh, oops! No, we just lit the fire. Uh-huh. Now there's Christians in Rome at a sizable number of Christians in the center of culture. It must have blown people's mind. And the Apostle Paul says their faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. Because you can imagine the Christians would be like, "There's Christians in Rome." Because, I mean, okay, at this time, there's probably not even, I mean, what, 100,000 Christians in the world? Maybe not even that many. 
We have no idea how many there were, but I mean, it was, it was a small community. It was not, it wasn't like it is today where we're like, of course there are Christians over there. No, this is this tiny little thing that just started spreading and they're like, that is crazy. And now there's a group, a sizable number of Christians in the capital city of the planet. That's pretty awesome. So the whole world knows. Yes? No. Are you going back to the rapture question? <laughs> <I'm>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, I didn't mean to start anything. I was just going to No, it's all right. What? <clears throat> well, it's not even about really like what we were talking about. It's probably just a lack of my knowledge on it. <laughs> Well, it is. During the tribulation, can you still, like, are you still, do you still, like, have a connection to God, like, through that? Like, can you pray for people and they be healed? It is my belief, and many people, many people believe this, that there will be a massive revival going on in the middle of the tribulation. That the greatest harvest of of souls ever in human history will be happening (laughs) during the... The, the tribulation and the great tribulation. Right. Regardless, people believe that regardless of of when they think the rapture is. Yeah. Because God is, that's the whole point of the tribulation. That's what you need to understand. What God is doing is turning up the heat on planet earth so that everyone that will come, will come. He is doing everything he can possibly do to get the most people saved in the shortest amount of time. That's what's going on. The judgments he's pouring out on the earth, the the miracles and the crazy things, all of that is God saying, come in, come in. Time is short. To the point where he even has angels flying through the air, shouting to the earth, Jesus is the only, like, you know, accept the gospel, okay? So he's, there's, there's crazy stuff, okay? Yeah. So that's what's going on. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so there is... And mo- uh, there's there's reason to believe that there will be miracles on an unparalleled scale among the church. Okay, that that the saints will be doing things like, well, that a lot of the same miracles that they saw like during the Exodus, like food falling from the sky and turning water into wine, and I mean all that kind of stuff. And plus, they're mostly like protected. They're they're mostly no, not like. <laughs> <laughs> they're mostly protected from like they are protected from things like the demonic army that goes throughout the earth. If the person has the mark of God on their foreheads, that army won't attack them, but it's going to attack everyone else. Okay. There's actually two demonic armies that are unleashed on the planet during the great tribulation. One looks like locusts and the other one is like these, these beings that ride on these weird, it's crazy. Anyway, <coughs> yes. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Yes. yes. So that's, that means that there's going to be so much food. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, we don't. Priority straight. I don't know that. It, I mean, it's it's What's it's a celebration of Jesus and the bride, the church, being reunited after. So, will there be food? Probably, but that's not really the point. The point is. <laughs> I'm excited about the food in heaven. I, I am. I am deep. I am very excited. Jesus still ate after his resurrection, and the Bible says that our bodies will be just like his when we're resurrected, also, which means eating is a part of heaven. 
I am very excited about that. I personally, I'm I'm quite excited. Okay, so say like the mark of the beast comes, and I don't exactly know what all that like entails, but yeah. say like a person gets the mark of the beast, but then they choose to follow Christ, like what happens? Once they have the mark of the beast, they cannot follow They cannot? Christ. Okay, no. well like what if they get it like unknowingly, like by accident? Like, it's not going to be like that. Okay. There's, nobody is going to be like... Oh shoot! I got the mark of the beast. Oh crap! That's not going to happen. Okay, this is this is a choice, and one of the things that the angels flying through the midst of heaven is, is, is saying is, "Do not take the mark." And it will be very obvious exactly what you are doing. You are choosing a side, and there won't be anybody that's going to be like. I don't know, mark or no mark. You know what? I want to be able to buy things, so let's just get the mark, and then later I'll just take it off. No, it's not like that. It, it, it's not. It won't be. It won't be an accident. There's all these people that like talked about when social security numbers came out. They were like, "It's the mark of the beast." No, it's not. Okay. Right. Exactly. It's that's not. Nobody's putting a mark on me. It's already there. God put this there. That's not the mark of the beast. All right? But most people think it's going to be, most people theorize that it will probably be like a chip like you put in your dog, you know, where where they can like track you all over the world and you can, like it has your bank accounts and things hooked up to it so that you can like scan your hand and so you wouldn't ever need a credit card or anything else. And then, and nobody can steal it, you know, because what? I know, I've already seen. I know. I think it's a really great idea, but and, and honestly, I don't. But okay, you have to understand the mark of the beast has to have a beast. Okay, you have to worship the beast in his image in order to receive the mark. So there's no beast now. There's no. We're not. It's it's not like okay, we're gonna do this chip thing, and then you show up at the place, and they're like. And they're like, you know, psh, and they're like, ha ha, now you're going to hell. I mean, it's not like that. It's, 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 don't be worried. Everybody's worried about the mark of the beast. Don't be worried about it. The, the reason why there will be people who will be tempted to get it at that time because you cannot buy or sell without it. It's the only way to participate in the market economy, okay? Which means that people will be starving to death because they can't buy food. Well, that's exactly right. We're going to have to receive supernatural provision in order to, you know, so anyway. Okay, let's get back to Romans. If you guys want to do a, like, an end times seminar kind of thing, two years ago I did one. It was all day. We did like six hours. We went from Daniel all the way through Revelation and, and like... I had a Prezi, I think I still have it, which, where oh we walked God. all the way through. And yes, we did, well, we did snacks that were, that were, that were apocalypse related. Like the roll-ups were this, was the scroll. And then there was, there was some pretty awesome stuff. And I bought, I bought bowls of hot salsa that were going to be the bowls of wrath. And, and yeah. anyway, okay. <laughs> With the actual verse we were talking about. Yes. Was was Christianity illegal in Rome? Was it something not yet. That you were punished for? Not yet. Okay. They were very tolerant. There were millions of religions in the Roman Empire. I mean, millions. And not only that, I mean, the Roman, the, the official 
Roman religion had like hundreds of gods. So this is just, well, just put one more up. I mean, you know, they even had, in Athens, they even had a pedestal to the, in case we forgot a god, pedestal. It's just <laughs> pedestal to an unknown god. Like, if they're, just in case, there's a god out there that we didn't recognize. Oops, we forgot a god. He, this is for you, okay? We haven't, you're at this, you can worship from here. It's going to be all right. Um, so they, they didn't care. Christianity didn't become a problem until much later. Well, it wasn't that much later than this, but it was, you know, it was around, you know, 70, 80 years after Jesus' death where Christianity was becoming massive in the Roman Empire. And, and they were weird. These people were weird. Wait a minute. You worship one God and he was crucified? What? I don't understand. And people thought they were cannibals because they were talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And... and and they did not understand Christians because Christians were very different from everybody else. You mean you don't sleep with everything that moves? Why? Okay. Like, <clears throat> well, because that's what they did. I mean, it was like, that was part of Roman life was sex with everybody. Woo. Okay. So let's, let's, can we, you know, this is like, yeah, go ahead. Like I said, we can do, we can do an end times like. Whatever. I would enjoy that. Talk to I would talk to Nathan and Sophie and and or whoever and and set up the date and we'll do it. I'm totally okay with I, we will we will chase down every last detail, okay, if you want. But uh, but let's not do that right now because we're in Romans right now. Okay, so verse nine. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests. If perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. So Paul really wants to go to Rome and he prays for the church. I love this about the Apostle Paul. He's always talking about I am praying for you. I pray for you all the time. I never stop praying for you. Look at all the different letters he talks about. And sometimes in the letter, he puts in the prayer that he prays over them. There's one in Romans too. But (coughs) those prayers are powerful. And if you look at them, you will realize that Paul never prays for their like physical reality. He never says, God, I pray that they would be rich and prosperous and whatever. He prays for their spiritual welfare. He does not pray for their, for their outward life. How much of our prayer life do we spend talking to God about all of the stuff that the stuff we need, the problem that we have, that whatever the apostle Paul says, no, no, no. I'm in, I am interested in praying for you about the stuff that actually matters. And that is He's praying for you about your relationship with Christ. He's praying for you about your relationship with each other. That's what the Apostle Paul prayed for. And he's been asking God to allow him to go to Rome and preach in Rome. Uh, Verse 11, For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. Okay, it's a young church. He wants to give them foundation. But I love this idea that the Apostle Paul wants to go because he knows that he carries a grace on his life for the establishment of a church. He is an apostle. He's been called by God to be an apostle. And the apostle's job is to give structure, order, and, and solidity to brand new groups of believers, to help them to live in a healthy way 
with each other and in their relationship with God. He knows he carries a specific gift and he's asking God to send him to Rome so that he can impart this gift to them. Guys, every single one of you carries a specific grace. You carry a grace. There's something that God has done in your life in the past. Maybe it's your, maybe it's your, the things God delivered you from that you carry a grace to speak to that person, the person that is in the same place as you and you can speak to their situation because you lived it, you walked it. And now you, you can give them keys to unlocking the things that you have walked through. And now, and now, and, and now you carry, maybe it's just a specific thing that God has blessed you and gifted you to speak about. One of the reasons that they, that, uh, that they asked me to come down to Mexico to speak on the father heart of God was, you know, they said, we just, you just carry that really well, which I don't know. Maybe I do. I don't know. But I, there are speakers. I, I have, you know, favorite speakers, favorite people I love to listen to. I listen to at least one sermon a week, at least sometimes several off the, off the internet or whatever. <coughs> and I go to specific people for specific things because there are, like, if I want to hear a message that is just going to leave me jaw open, drooling in worship, enjoying the gospel of Jesus Christ, I go to Timothy Keller because nobody carries the gospel like Timothy Keller, except maybe Martin Lloyd-Jones. But Timothy Keller speaks to how the gospel explodes inside of a human life better than any preacher I have ever encountered. He carries that grace of understanding the gospel. And so I love to just go and listen and just kind of bathe in it for a while. Okay. Uh, John Piper, nobody carries the grace of the, 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 the ultimate worth of the glory of God like John Piper. John Piper, oh my gosh. I just sit, I just weep. I listen to him preach about the worth of the glory of God and my whole being just like uh, vibrates because he carries that message so powerfully, so strongly that it's like, oh, I love it so much. And there's other things I've heard him preach on that I'm like, eh, you know, like, People are given specific graces for specific messages. We, each individual, you're all very different, okay? And God is an infinite being. So he imparts specific graces to specific people that they might carry this one reality. And I honestly believe with all of my heart that in heaven, you will still be responsible to carry that grace. That even in heaven, God will use you to minister to others about a specific aspect of his character and of his nature. I really believe that because it's who you are. I had a, a visionary experience many years ago. I was, I was in worship and I was just enjoying worship. And um, all of a sudden I was taken to this place and it was this gigantic room and in it, uh, the, the, in it, what, the center of it was this this hole in the in the in the floor, but the rest of the room, the the floor was made of different gemstones, like different colored gemstones, and the people that were standing in 
Now, the the way that the gemstones were like like one wedge of the room was emeralds and one wedge of the room was like sapphire one wedge of the room was like rubies okay so so like and the people that were standing in that particular section were dressed in the color of the section they were dressed so the, like the emerald like floor and I don't know that it was emeralds I'm just guessing because it was translucent and it was the color of emeralds but they were standing in that in that area and they were all dressed in green. And then there was people in the red that were all dressed in red. Okay. And they, and <coughs> what was happening was everyone's worshiping Jesus in this room. And there's this light under the floor, this, this beautiful light. And it would move under the floor from one section of color to the next. So it would be in the green. And then the whole room would be the colors it was, but also tinged with green. Okay, and then the light would move over to the blue, and then the whole room would be tinged with blue, but they would still, but you could still see the colors that it was. And I'm watching all this happen, and it's this this awesome worship time, and and all of a sudden the the light came to the middle of the room, and it came up through the hole in the floor, and everybody was worship, and this this all of a sudden the whole room, the the crispness and the clarity of the colors just. Like, boom, all of them at the same time were just totally, like, popping, like, wow, like, we're all looking around at each other. And then we all got sucked up into this light, and we were just surrounded by this glorious light. And, and every time I would worship, the the atmosphere in the room would explode, like, it would, like, like in fire. I would just be like, Jesus! It would, like, explode. And, and this, like, this stuff was collecting on my face and on my hands or whatever. And I went like rubbed it like this and it was gold. <laughs> and I was just like, what is going on? Anyway. So that was the end of the vision. I had no clue what it meant. None. I had to pray about this for a long time. The Lord began to show me, he said in worship, uh, he will highlight specific aspects of his nature. And he will be revealing that aspect of his nature as we worship him, as we like, look at God, maybe the song will do it. Maybe just like the, the way the spirit's moving in the room will do it. But all of a sudden, all of us, everybody in the room will be worshiping God because of his grace or because of his mercy or because of his generosity or because of his strength, you know, and those colors kind of represented one of those realities of who he was. They were all unified. They were all together. But he said to me that the people dressed in the color of that thing were people who carried a grace, a deep knowledge, a deep revelation of that one aspect of who God was. Does that make sense? Like, so if I'm standing in the grace area, that I would be dressed in the color of grace because that was a part of my DNA was deeply understanding the grace of God and the mercy of God. And when the light would shine through that area, something of that revelation that I just carried because God created me to carry it, would be spilled out through the room so that everyone got a taste of the grace of God, you know, and we would all worship him because of it. But there were people who were deeply marked by this reality and who carried that thing. And then when God came up through the middle, it was just undiluted God. And we all got sucked in because it was just the worship of the beauty of God, of all of who he is, because white light carries all of the colors within it. And it was, so anyway, I don't really know why God gave me that particular uh, understanding or vision, but, but, <coughs> but he did. And I've thought about it a lot since then, because what grace do I carry? He says, I want to come to you. The Apostle Paul says, I want to come to you because I want to impart a spiritual gift to you. 
So in essence, he's like, I, I'm wearing the color of God's grace and I want to come into your midst so you can see it. Does that make sense? Have you ever, you, I'm sure you have, you have heard a teacher teach on something that you were like, I thought I understood this, but now like my whole understanding of that one reality has completely been shifted because this person talked about it. And it's because they have a revelation of uh, a, a deeper understanding, a deeper revelation of it. And God wants to shine through that person to give you a taste of that so that you can carry some of it as well. And the apostle Paul was asking God, take me there because whatever grace is on me, I want to impart it to those people. That's what I want to do. That's what he was saying. I think I'm always fascinated. Um, Jesus, Jesus said that, uh, The, the one who receives the prophet as a prophet receives a prophet's reward. Does that make sense? You guys remember, do you, know, you remember that particular verse? And it's this picture of God has, has hidden treasures in each of his kids. And when we see and value the treasure that God has hidden in them, we will receive that treasure ourselves. So you are a gift to the person sitting next to you. You know, we always talk about, oh, he thinks he's God's gift. Well, you are. <laughs> okay. You are. And the question is, and I actually ask myself this question sometimes, Lord, why am I in this relationship? Like, what is it that you've called me to give to this person? Like, what? Why am I being drawn into that place? For instance, like when, like when I went to Mexico, I'm like, Lord, what is it that I carry that you're taking me down there to impart? Because that's what I want to be about. I just want to get out of the way and let you do this. Okay? It's the same thing with um, just any time I go to minister anywhere, I'm constantly asking, Lord, what is it? Okay, what, why are you putting me in that spot? Because you could have chosen anyone. I mean, anybody, you couldn't... Any, absolutely anybody could have done it. So why did you pick me to go there? And God, God is not, he doesn't do things by accident. You don't end up anywhere by accident. You don't end up in any relationship that you have by accident. God, is, God wants to use you in their midst to give them a gift. And the question is, are you going to help God give them that gift? Or are you going to stand in God's way? And to see how you fit in a group of people. And I asked the Lord that, what, okay, what do you want me to impart to them? There's one particular guy. I'm like, Lord, I was in the middle of this conversation with him. And this guy wanted to have a discipleship relationship with me, which I was totally great with. I love doing that. I do that all the time. I always try and have a few people that I'm like walking with day, like very regularly that I'm discipling personally. It's something I try, I always want to do. So I ask God to send those people to me. Or make show me who they are so I can chase them down. Okay? And I and the Lord will sometimes tell me, this is what I want you to do in that person's life. And this one particular guy was just just he was just despair all the time. He just had no hope whatsoever. And the Lord said to me, I am commissioning you to be hope in this person's life. So that's my job with him. 
when we get together, I just every time despair comes out of his mouth, like Bleh, then I just I confront it and I say, I don't believe that's true. And I just begin to speak hope into that person's life. And sometimes it annoys him and sometimes it really helps, but you know. Because that's what happens. Verse 12. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, well, among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. This just speaks more to what I'm talking about. Ministers that come into your midst, people that carry a certain thing, don't put them up on some kind of pedestal. They don't deserve that. Okay? They're just like you. They're no different than you. And the truth is, God has brought them to you so that you can, so that they can minister to you. But he's also put them in your midst so that you can minister to them. <coughs> the relationship that we have with whatever minister it is, whatever leader it is that we sit under, whatever, whatever teacher it is that we're listening to, whatever person it is that's ministering to us, we have part of our ministry, I mean, part of your ministry to the people that minister to you is receiving what they bring. Okay, because I was created for a purpose to carry a specific gift. And if nobody wants this gift that I was called to carry, then I feel purposeless and empty. Does that make sense? And for you to receive and enjoy the gift that I bring, that makes me feel good about what God's given me to do. Right? You know how it is. How many of you like love it when you walk in a room and people just kind of shut up and like roll their eyes like, oh God, here she is, here he is right no you hate that right because it's like you don't want to you don't want to walk into a room and have everybody mad that you're there okay you want to walk into a room and have people go yeah we were we were waiting for you like you know we're so glad you that that you're with us you're just receiving you in that way that's really beautiful like you know and we need to be doing that for each other we need to be welcoming one another i am so glad that you're in my life because you bring this into my life you carry this into my life one of the things that I remember when I was very young, I was probably 12 or 13. It was one of the first youth, uh, youth <coughs> um, uh, events I ever went to as a kid back in the Stone Age. Okay. And we went, we, we went to Lake Placid Campground. <laughs> Woo! Right? And, uh, and, and, uh, and, and we were there, and uh, my dad was actually the speaker at, at, at this youth thing, and it was a little awkward because, you know, I'm like 12 or 13 and my dad's speaking, you know. <laughs> but he had us do this thing where we we had to, there was maybe 30 people there. And each of us would had to write our name on a piece of paper and then pass it down the line. And everybody in the room, you were supposed to, like, think about the person whose name was on the paper and write down something that they, some way that that person blesses you or some way that that person uh, brought something good into your life. Like, and I'll never forget it because we passed it around, you know, and you're thinking, you know, there were some people who just like wrote the same thing on everybody's paper. Like, you're a cool guy. You're a cool guy. You're a cool guy. But then there are other people that are actually thoughtful about like, what do I want to put down on this about that person? And I began, and, and the thing was, when I got the paperback, a lot of people were saying very similar things about me. And it was something that I did not really understand about myself and it, at the time. And it was like, you're a passionate lover of Jesus Christ. Like it was that kind of people were saying, I appreciate you because you're passionate about the Lord. Well, I didn't even realize that that was true about me. 
Like I didn't, I didn't understand that my personal passion for the Lord would have anything to do with anybody else. Now I realize that it's one of my primary gifts. One of my primary gifts that I am to carry is that I'm just passionate about Jesus. And when I get into a room and just be passionate about Jesus, when other people are there, all of a sudden, like it stokes their fire. Like that's part of why I exist is to do that for people. And so great, you know, that's, I get to, by being who I am, I don't put this on like some kind of costume. This is who I am. By being who I am, I am used by God to do something for others. And that blew my mind. And I kept that paper in my wallet for years until my wallet got lost. And now I don't have it anymore. Makes me sad. But anyway, I kept that in my wallet. Because every once in a while, I would just go back and I would open it again and be like, Lord, you used me in this way. And, And it was a really powerful moment for me. I was, I mean everybody's pretty insecure when they're 12 or 13, right? I mean, and, and just hearing people speak something positive over my life was like, okay, yeah. And that's what we're called to do. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I want to come and give you a gift, but I also know that when I'm with you, being with you will encourage me. You know, I, when I, I was just, I'm down there in Mexico and I'm looking at these young people, many of them, like one particular guy, their family is unbelievably poor. And so his brother, this guy's brother, is working to pay for his DTS. And next year, he's going to work to pay for his brother's DTS. Like, oh my gosh, what? That is amazing. Like the relationship that they have and, and how valuable they think this is. I mean, that is incredible to me. That somebody would give their life for like nine months to say, I'm going to work this job and I'm going to be giving most of the money from this job so that you can be a part of this discipleship training school. That is crazy for me. I think that is awesome. You know, and I'm watching, I was just watching that happen, you know, with this group of people. I'm just like, and they really encouraged me. Their passion for the Lord, the way that they would like, you know, just give their all to do, to do what they were in that moment to do. Okay. Guys, Master's Commission is a huge opportunity for you. Okay, most people do not get the opportunity to spend a couple years of their life to dig into Jesus as much as they possibly can. Most people don't have that opportunity. Or if they did, they don't take it. This is a gift. You need to look at every really crappy moment in Master's Commission as an absolute gift, a kiss from Jesus because it's what it is. And you need to look at the people that are sitting in this room with you right now and realize that they are personal gifts from Jesus to you, even and especially the person in this room that you cannot stand and you wish that they would cease to exist. That person is a gift from God the Father to you because he's teaching you something. And I think about the people that have been unbelievably difficult for me to work with in ministry setting. I mean, oh my gosh. And uh, there's, there's a list, okay? There's a long list. And, and I, I, used to, I used to actually go through, when I was really angry about something or someone, I used to go through and be like, Father, I just, I thank you for Preston Simmons right now. <laughs> I've heard that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just like, no, I'm just teasing, buddy. I love you. You know that. <laughs> Trust me. There are a lot of people that I had a lot harder times with than you. A lot. Okay, so don't worry about that. <laughs> Nay. Okay, anyway. Um, 
But Gracie was awesome. I never had any. I mean, she was just great. Speaking of hating people. Speaking of what? Wow. Wow. Okay, Kylo. Fight against the dark side here, buddy. Okay. Please understand that those that have been put into your life as leaders over you, God, God wants to use you to encourage them. God wants to use you to bless them back. And you need to be looking for opportunities and ways and moments where you can give back to the people who are pouring out their lives for you. Do everything you can to do that. Um, verse 12, uh, verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have planned, <coughs> that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. This statement in verse 14, I am under obligation. The Apostle Paul had been given a job by the Lord, to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That was his job. That was his obligation, and he knew it, and it weighed on him. It weighed on him. He was thinking about it all the time. I've been given this job. I've been given this responsibility to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he was asking God for more open doors, for more opportunities, for more for for. for more places where he could go and be an apostle to Gentiles. He wanted to preach the gospel to every Gentile, whether it was a Greek or a barbarian. Now understand, the Greeks means like everybody that's a part of the Roman civilization, and barbarians mean everyone that doesn't speak Greek. It wasn't specifically just Greek people like from Greece. He was talking about this Hellenistic, that's what we call it, because that's what the Greeks called themselves. Actually, they were called Hellenes. They, weren't, they didn't refer to themselves as Greeks. That was a name that was given to them much later on in history. They referred to themselves as Hellenes. Have you ever heard of Hellenistic culture? Okay, That was the culture in the world at that time that spoke Greek as kind of the business language of their world. And that extended everywhere where uh, uh, Alexander the Great had had his kingdom. He was the one that went around, he conquered all these nations, he con um, and uh, all the way to like Iran in the east, and all the way through Egypt in the west, and even further west than that, and parts of Europe, and, uh, and then Greek, uh, Greece, and then Eastern Asia as well. So this huge empire, that he, what he did is he established Greek, the language, uh, as the language of business, the language of government, <laughs> through that whole area. Okay? And this is several hundred years later, and now uh, it's still that way. Even though Alexander the Great's been gone for a long time, that culture of using Greek as the language that everyone speaks, now English is that language in, this wor in the world. If you want to get ahead in business, you have to learn English because most business is still, is, uh, international business is conducted in English. It's the way that it is. When you go to airports all over the world, 
you'll see the language of the of the everyday person, and then you'll see it written in English. Because that's you know the language that which is a terrible terrible tragedy because English is a terrible language to be honest with you. <laughs> it's not, it's difficult, it's confusing, it's not easy. There's so many other languages that would have been better. But anyway, English, it's my language and I love it, but it's it's I mean there have been other there have been other languages that have been kind of offered up. You ever heard of Esperanto? <laughs> No, nobody's heard of Esperanto. No. It was a language that was specifically created to be one of the easiest languages to learn and to speak, but still work really well. And they, and it was and people were trying to get everybody to use that instead of English or some other national language as the international language. Well, it didn't. Work. So nobody speaks it anymore. But uh, but anyway, <laughs> so. Greek was that language and so when the Apostle Paul says Greeks that's who he's referring to he's referring to people that speak Greek it would have been people in Africa that spoke Greek people in Europe that spoke Greek people in Asia that spoke Greek people in Israel that spoke Greek I mean everywhere it was just people that spoke Greek because they were considered civilized they were the, the city folk they were the educated people and everybody else were the barbarians which that word barbarian is actually a Greek phrase, which meant like the, it, it just means the people that when they talk sound like this, bar, 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 bar. That's, that's what it means. That that's just how they talk. I don't know if, you know, bar, 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 bar. Just that that's, that that's what it's, that's, that's how they heard the language of other people, that that's just what it sounded like all the time. So they call them the barbarians because that's what they sounded like when they talked. And that was what he said. So he says to the wise and to the foolish, he's talking specifically about the educated and the uneducated. He said, it doesn't matter to me whether they're educated or not. It doesn't matter to me whether they're sophisticated or not. It doesn't matter to me whether they are city folk or country folk. I'm under obligation to these people to bring the gospel to them. And I want to ask you this question. Do you feel the weight of that obligation? The weight of the obligation that God of, of the ministry that God has personally called you to be a part of. When I walk around Angola and Fremont, I feel it. I was out with my kids trick-or-treating on Monday night, and I'm walking around, I'm looking at all these people, and I'm realizing I don't know these people. And it was messing with me. As I'm walking around, I'm like God has called me to these people, and I don't know them. I've never seen them. I've never, you know, I, I have no sense of who they are. And it was really, it was upsetting me, to be honest. It was stirring me up on the inside. Because I was like, I, God, you've called me to this group. You've called me to this place. I'm under obligation to these people. Do you feel that? When I was youth pastor here at this church, every teenager I saw, I felt like, I felt that obligation. Like, I am called to that person. God's given me grace and pastorship to take the, the obedience that comes from faith to the young people of the greater Fort Wayne area. That's my calling. That was my calling at the time. And when I would be around teenagers, I would feel that weight, that obligation, and you should feel it too. Whoever it is that God has called you to minister to, wherever it is that God's called you to minister to. You're on assignment. And not only that, 
but God would give me assignments for specific people where I would, I would meet someone and I would be like, and the Holy Spirit would say, this person is your personal assignment. You have to chase them down. You have to knuckle them under this person. You are on assignment with this individual. You have to be available to them. You have to be more than available to them. You have to be like after them, pursuing them. And that was hardcore. Several of those people that God put me on assignment with, they never... Like, nothing ever happened there. I pursued them as much as I knew how, and nothing ever happened. They, ended, they still ended up walking away from the Lord. Or, I mean, you know, so I just prayed for them, and anytime I had an opportunity to speak into their life, I would. But I felt obligation toward them. We need to live in that place. Who are you under obligation with? It's a question I want you to to ask the Lord. It's a question I want you to think about. Ponder. Who's my obligation? Where's my obligation? I mean, there's some easy ones. You're one of your, I mean, one of your primary obligations is to your family. Those people were put in your life by God. You were put in relationship to them for a purpose. That's one of your first obligations. Another of your first obligations are the people in this room. You are in this room for a purpose. God designed it this way. You might think, no, this was just a huge mistake. No, it wasn't. You are here. The fact that you are here means God put you here. Even if you're at this point saying, and this was about the point in my Master's Commission walk when I went, I don't know that I heard God. I figured it out later that, yeah, I had. But there was definitely, I was definitely about this far in when I started thinking, yeah, I don't know that this was God's will at all. Maybe I was just, I had bad pizza that day and somebody said Master's Commission and the two just linked each other. I don't know. <laughs> there is no way that I should be hanging out with that person every day. Well, you know, is it the Holy Spirit or is it gas? That's the question. <laughs> it's not always obvious. Sometimes, <laughs> Lord. Okay. You know, I think about like Ebenezer Scrooge when he's like, the the ghost says, "Why do you doubt your senses?" And he's like, "Because a slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheat." You know, and, and he makes that horrible pun. There's more of gravy than of grave about you. You know, just that. Um, that's it, it, a real thing. We're physical beings, okay? So we should always be tethered to the word. We should always take anything that God said to us, like to counsel. You know what I mean? Take it to people that are wiser than us and say, "I think I heard this," because. You know, hopefully you have people in your life that are going to look at you and go, you didn't hear that. That's not God. I've had that conversation with people many times. I think the Lord's telling me to move to Iceland. No, he's not. (laughs) What do you mean? How can you tell me that God's not telling me that? It's like, maybe he's telling you that for about 10, 15 years down the road, but you're 13 years old. God is not telling you to pick up everything right now and move to Iceland. No. No. 
That's not true. You don't understand. Yes, I do. I understand you really like Sigurus and you just want to go to Iceland and get it. But no, it's not it's not the Lord. Okay? Or my favorite one is God told me that we we're gonna get married. No, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. You just think she's really hot and it's the only way you're gonna get to have sex there because you love Jesus. So you think that but God did not say that to you. That was your hormones talking, not Jesus. I can't tell you how many how many times I've had that conversation. But the Lord told us told me we're getting married. No, he didn't. No. You're 14. The Lord did not tell you that. And even if he did, there's nothing you can do about it today. So just put it in the back. Just leave it back there and don't you dare tell her. No. Problem is, normally when they're telling me this, they've already told them this. And I have to say things like, I need you to go to them right now and tell them I was wrong. God did not tell me that. Why did God tell me that too? Like if somebody told me that. Yeah, no. Yeah, I was just just saying, that's what I would say. If you're in a position where getting married to someone actually kind of makes sense, where it, it's time for you to kind of turn your life that direction and whatever, and the Lord begins to speak to you about that person being the person you should be with, then okay, let's pray about that together. We'll talk more. But if you are in middle school <laughs> or even if you're not in middle school but you have no job, there's nothing going on in your life, like you have no plans – and all of a sudden, I'm supposed to marry this person. No, you're not. Because if you married them, you would ruin their life. So let's, let's. I, mean, I don't think a job or something to do. Let's, uh, let's, you know, let's, let's get you a job. Let's decide, you know, what are you going to do with your life? Do you have any idea? Because getting married is not a lifestyle choice, okay? Getting married is, is a whole nother universe. And you really need to know who you are before you become one with someone else. Does that make sense? Yeah. Important. Very important. Now, none of you are ever going to come to me saying that I'm supposed to marry someone because it's going to be like, I know what he's going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's okay. You're... <coughs> you don't have to listen to me. I mean, I, I might say that to you. You can just be like, <laughs> I'm getting married anyway. <laughs> That's right. I already said that I would, and I will. All right, we have four minutes left, and I'm not going to go to verse 16, so we're just going to stop there. Do we have any questions? What? We did. We went eight verses. That's exciting. And we had the rapture talk through that as well. How did that even happen? I have no idea. And we brought doubles. We watched the conversation about money about what? Not one Monty Python conversation. It's not even a good class without a Monty Python. Now, are we good? All right. I will open the floor for the next four minutes for Revelation questions. Go. Um, so, if during the revela- during the tribulation, if you're like faced with something like a demonic power or Satan or something like that, 
and uh, you're like, no, I serve like the Most High King. You can't touch me. Is that still a thing then? Like, yes. Okay, I just I just make sure, like, because I know that during the tribulation, doesn't it say something about like, Satan's can like? Oh, it just says that he can run the earth and say that he rules the earth. Doesn't it? I mean, or, he's in the a very earth. real way. He rules the earth right now. Yeah, I know. So it's that. <laughs> God isn't like just abandoning the planet. Yeah. That's not happening. Everything that happens in the tribulation, um, there's the there's there's two kind of pieces to what happens during the tribulation. The first part is that uh, God takes away his his hand of of that he's had all over human civilization, where he's not allowed them to destroy themselves. Like, from the time of the Tower of Babel, God has been intervening in human uh, affairs to keep us from destroying ourselves. We've come really close, and God has stopped us over and over and over again. I, I listened to this radio program a couple years ago about, about, the nuclear pro, about the nuclear programs in the world and about how many times we came this close to, like, all-out nuclear war and nobody knew it. Mm-hmm. And how easy it would have been. Like there was this one particular time where these guys were working in a nuclear silo. There's a nuclear missile in there. One of the largest nuclear bombs that the United States has. It's a Titan missile. And it's in this thing. And a guy was working on it and he dropped his wrench. And it punctured the fuel tank of the of the nuclear missile. And they all ran out because, the, because rocket fuel is pouring into the thing. And it could explode at any moment. Even the random spark would do it. And if it had exploded, it may have set off the nuclear missile. I mean, it's very possible that that would happen. And when they tried to, like, vent the gas and get back in there to, like, the door would not open. They couldn't get back inside. At any moment during that 24 hours, that missile could have blown up, could have launched, could have done, like, anything. It would have been really easy. For that missile to blow up. And we had what was called dead man switches on both sides of the of the 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 war, United States and Russia, where if a nuclear missile went off, if a nuclear explosion went off that we weren't planning, the computers would by themselves launch nuclear weapons <coughs> towards the other country. So if this missile had blown up in the silo, blown up this nuclear missile, our computers would have thought we were under attack from Russia and would have launched the missiles at Russia. Then Russia would have launched missiles back. The whole world would have been destroyed because the guy dropped his wrench. Okay? (laughs) (laughs) That kind of thing. Okay, exactly. All right? And it didn't happen, but it's just random miracles. It didn't happen. And that's just one. There was like in this video program they were talking about, there's a whole book written about all the days the world almost ended. Okay? And, and God, every single time, the Lord's up there going, oh. it just like, stop it. Stop, 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 stop. No, stop. Okay? Over and over and over again, the Lord has shut down our ability to destroy ourselves. In the tribulation, the first thing God's going to do is say, I'm done doing that. I'm done stopping the world from destroying itself. So he withdraws his grace from the leadership of humankind. 
and it says, go ahead, boys. And humans just be – they just be, just act human is what happens. They just run out there. They act human. And a gigantic world war happens. World War Three will take place or it might be four by then. Who knows? I mean we don't – or five or seven. But World War Three will happen. There will be a gigantic war will be one of the first things that happens in the midst of the tribulation. Okay? It's a gigantic world war. Gigantic wall? No. <laughs> that might spark it. You never know. <coughs> Although, I mean, there's a wall in Israel that was prophesied that now exists. If you want to be really scared, don't look at, at the American election because that's, that's just frustrating. It's not, not nearly as scary as it is frustrating. Look at what's going on with Syria, Russia, and Israel right now. That is the scary stuff because Ezekiel 37 is all about a war between Russia, Israel, and Syria. And that most people, most scholars believe that that will be kind of the kickoff. Because what has to happen for the tribulation to begin is that many, many nations have to come together and sign a treaty of non-aggression against Israel. That's what that's how the the tribulation begins, right there. Most pre-tribulation scholars would say that either right before or right after that treaty is signed is when the church will be raptured. Okay? But it's there. It's a treaty that's going to be signed. And one of the signers will be the Antichrist himself. One of them. Of course, we don't know who he is. We don't know a whole lot about him. I'll get to you in a second. When that treaty is signed, start the clock because it's going to be seven years from that time until the time Jesus takes over the planet. That's the tribulation, right there. We know. Okay. Now that hasn't happened yet. But it so may. like by taking his grace away, you mean like is the forgiveness of sins? No, there? no. He's just what I mean. Grace is anything God does to humans that don't deserve Him doing anything yeah. for them. Okay. So when I say that, what I mean is right now, right now, God is influencing human decisions to keep us from destroying ourselves. Gotcha. He's going to stop that. He's going to just say, go for it, boys. And they're just going to do what they do. Gotcha. It's not going to be God saying, start a war. No, he's just going to just let humans be humans and a war will happen. Okay. And here it comes, you know, all of a sudden there's a gigantic world war. At the same time, it's a gigantic idea revolution. It's going to sweep the planet. It's called the spirit of Antichrist. By the time we get to the middle of the tribulation, one human being will be the personal manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist on the planet. He will be a renewed king of the world and he will be killed and then resurrected. And it will be, uh, uh, he will desecrate the newly built temple in Jerusalem. We'll if you're watching, yes. If you know what to look for, yeah, I think we will. I know what I'm looking for. I am looking specifically for a seven-year treaty signed with Israel that means there will be no and, – and my guess is that as a part of that treaty, there will be the building of the temple in Jerusalem, that that will be a part of the treaty. Because right now there's no political way that a temple is going to be built in Jerusalem. It's not going to happen. There's going to have to be some kind of massive political shift in the thinking for a temple to be built. And there we have to have a temple for the – Abomination which causes desolation to take place. So, yeah. That's the last part. Was honestly all I was going to say is like they've started construction on like a couple of capstones, but they can't like fully do the temple yet because of the trees. Yeah. 
Well, the place where the temple must be built is owned by Muslims. It's the temp. It's the Dome of the Rock in Israel. Okay, it's the only place they can build the temple. Is there, and so and until we're given the opportunity, either by the destruction of that dome or by some kind of treaty where the dome will be like pared back, and will be able to, then then because the Bible says that the outer court of the tribulation temple will be trampled by Gentiles. So in other words, the temple won't be a full-fledged temple. It's going to be just inner court and then Holy of Holies. And then outside of that. But can you imagine what would happen? Thousands of years of fighting in Israel over this land, over and over again, people, bloodshed, ridiculous fighting, still to this day, it's the hotbed of the, of the world. And all of a sudden, someone comes out of the mist and is able to create a treaty where a Jewish temple and an Islamic mosque can sit right next to each other. I mean, it'll be on t-shirts. It'll be postcards. It'll be peace has come to the world, finally. And whoever this person is that brings that kind of peace to the world, finally, after generations and generations of fighting, everybody's going to say, you are amazing. You are awesome. You are incredible. You know what? Why don't you run my country, too? Right? I mean, think about it. Don't you think that that's... I mean, we would... Worship this man, literally, eventually. I don't think it'll start there. They won't actually worship him until he raises from the dead. And then he'll be forcing them to worship him. He's going to say, worship me or I kill you. Yeah, that's not good. All right, we got to go, guys. Blessing.